0: To open God's Word with you this morning, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 2, Galatians 2. If you're using one of the Bibles provided underneath the chairs, this morning you can find our passage on page 973, page 973. Uh, Last week we covered the first ten verses of chapter 2, in which Paul demonstrates that the gospel he preaches is the same as the gospel preached by the other apostles. Uh, He tells us of how he went to Jerusalem because of a revelation from the Lord and how the other apostles added nothing uh, to his gospel. In fact, they recognized the very same power at work in Paul's ministry as in their own, the power of God to save sinners. So they encouraged Paul in his ministry to the Gentiles and remind him not to forget the poor. One of the main reasons Paul brought up that event in this letter to uh, the churches in Galatia was because Paul saw a threat to the gospel that he preached uh, among those churches in Galatia. The threat was that there were some that we refer to sometimes as Judaizers that were teaching Gentile converts that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Uh, Paul sees this teaching for what it is. He describes it as departing from the true gospel. He calls it another gospel. That is a different message that should be rejected, no matter who it is that's preaching it. Uh, He calls those who teach it false brothers. And the reason is because it removes the grace of God from the equation in our salvation. Uh, In telling them of his visit to, to the Jerusalem Apostles Paul showed that his gospel has not been influenced by men at all, rather has come directly from God. The other apostles approved the message given, not that Paul needed their approval. But if there was any kind of disagreement, it would have been clear during that meeting. Because Paul brought with him his disciple Titus who happened to be a Gentile who converted to Christianity and had not been circumcised. Since they didn't require him to be, they were in total agreement. Uh, This shows that adherence to the law, to the Mosaic law, is no longer necessary. That instead salvation is found in Christ apart from the works of the law. All of that matters for our text this morning. Uh, Because despite the meeting that Paul had with Peter in Jerusalem, Peter himself was failing to live in a way that was consistent with that gospel that both he and Paul believed. Uh, Let's read our text this morning now to see what it was that Peter was being inconsistent about and how Paul responded to him. Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21. Paul says this, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives In me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There are many lessons that we could gather from this text this morning, Uh, but there's two main lessons that I want to hone in on today first is that all are susceptible to hypocrisy, even apostles. Uh, This is all the more reason for us to rehearse the gospel regularly to ourselves and to one another. That's the first thing. The second thing is that to add works-based requirements to the gospel is to nullify the grace of God, making Christ's death meaningless. Uh, So, You could say I have two main ideas this morning instead of one, but those are just going to be my two points for this passage. My prayer is that this text will be seared into your hearts as a place in the Bible where you can consistently return to remind yourself of the core elements of the gospel and the foundation of your faith. Before we dive into each of these two points, let's pray one more time and ask the Lord for uh, his help in understanding this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word this morning. Grant us humility and your mercy, and by your spirit, help us to live lives that promote and display the true gospel. Would you protect us from hypocrisy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So point one, All Christians are susceptible to hypocrisy, and I think this uh, kind of summary applies to verses 11 through 16. Uh, That's the reason Paul brings up Peter's failure in these verses. It's not because Paul was trying to one-up Peter uh, or prove that he was a better apostle or anything like that. Uh, Paul has more than once uh, called himself the least of all the apostles. Uh, He's not trying to one-up Peter, but to convince his readers that the gospel message he preached, the one that does not require circumcision, is authoritative over all people, regardless of their position, Uh, even the apostles themselves. And that's exactly why uh, Peter allows himself to be corrected, and uh, I believe then continues a friendship with Paul after the fact. It speaks volumes in and of itself, because Paul does not really pull any punches in this passage. Uh, He really does demonstrate what he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, that it doesn't matter to him who they are, what positions they hold. Paul says in verse 11 that Peter, the apostle Peter, stood condemned. Now, it wasn't too long ago that we went through the gospel of Mark uh, as a church together, and uh, with that gospel fresh on our minds, Peter is not often uh, painted in a very positive light. Uh, So for us, this may not be all that surprising or jarring. But to the early church, uh, to those who looked to Peter for influence, this would have been no small thing that Paul confronted Peter in this way. Paul explains in verse 12 that Peter, when he first came to Antioch, was eating with Gentiles. So this is how uh, Peter was living inconsistently. Uh, he rightly saw himself as equal to other Gentile Christians. Uh, I assume this means that Peter is fellowshipping with them. He's sharing a meal. Most likely, he's eating foods that would have been classified as unclean by Jewish law. Uh, if we follow the narrative in Acts, uh, Peter receives a vision where the Lord tells him that, uh, that all foods are Now he's able to eat in this historic era, and he's seen the Holy Spirit go out to Gentiles and having fellowship with them. We read earlier Acts 15, in which Peter goes to Antioch, spends time with Gentiles, and then later returns to Jerusalem over this very same issue. But it seems in between those two times, Peter is eating with the Gentiles until a certain group shows up. Paul says certain men came from James. James that caused him to separate from the Gentiles. Uh, These certain men are described in our text as the circumcision party, which at least means Jews. Uh, I think we can uh, can safely say from the rest of the letter that these are likely professing uh, Jewish Christians, probably the same ones that Paul called false brothers in verse 4 of the chapter. Jews who clearly do not share the same conviction that the gospel unites all people. It's possible that these were just unbelieving Jews, meaning Jewish people that did not profess Christ and uh, therefore Peter still feared them, the circumcision party. Uh, But I'm thinking that they're professing Christians, which is why they came from James. Either way, the point is this. Peter, after seeing the Holy Spirit given to Gentiles is enjoying fellowship with them until the Jews show up. And then he acts out of fear of what they will think. Fearing the circumcision party, he goes back to his old ways of separating and not dining with the Gentiles, acting inconsistently with the gospel. Uh, Paul says this kind of conduct was not in step with the gospel. Imagine being one of the Gentile Christians. There you are sharing a meal with Peter, perhaps one of the closest disciples to Christ himself, enjoying salvation together. And then as soon as the Jews come around, Peter acts like he doesn't know you anymore, separates himself. The truth of the gospel is what Paul will go on to say in chapter 3, that all are one in Christ. There is no distinction. There is neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. This is why Paul says that Peter's actions are hypocrisy. His life is out of step with the doctrine he preaches. And we know this because of what happened when Paul visited Peter in verses 1 through 10. Peter was in agreement with Paul. Peter had no problems with Titus. And we know from Acts that Peter himself had a fruitful ministry among the Gentiles. But Peter's fear of man gets the best of him in this instance, so that he was acting hypocritically. What's even worse was that he was influencing others. Even Barnabas was led astray by it. This is no small matter. So all Christians, I think it's safe to say, are susceptible to hypocrisy. Even Peter even Barnabas, even you, and even me. So what does Paul do? He confronts Peter uh, in front of everyone. Uh, Now, some of you may already be thinking about last week's sermon uh, and how my encouragement to you was to seek clarification privately rather than confronting people publicly uh, about their sins. So why does Paul decide to confront Peter publicly in this case? And is that what we should do? Well, that's a fair question to ask. Here are, I think, three reasons why Paul's public confrontation of Peter is the right thing to do for him here. Uh, and uh, three reasons why sometimes it might be appropriate for us to do the same. Uh, so, subpoint A the gospel is at stake here, meaning this is not a matter of secondary importance. What is the very foundation of the Christian faith. It's the very proclamation that the church is authorized to display to the world. It's the very thing against which Christ promised the gates of hell would not prevail. So if there is any issue that warrants public and swift rebuke, it's over these primary matters like the gospel. Uh, Peter is a confessing believer, meaning it's not as though he was a Jew preaching segregation between Jews and Gentiles, Peter has become a Christian. He should be living as a Christian. Paul's not just trying to put him in his place. He's calling him to live a consistent lifestyle so that his gospel witness would not be contradicted by his lifestyle. We should all pray that our lives enhance the gospel rather than distort it to those Uh, who are observers of our lives. Well, that's one reason. Another reason is Peter is a leader in the church. Uh, He already said in verse 6 that Peter was influential in the church, which means he has a significant influence over other Christians. And that's clear, of course, by those who are influenced by him in this passage. It says the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically with him. And even Barnabas was led astray with him. Uh, Leaders are held to a higher standard. And all leaders should be, because others look to them as examples and teachers. Paul writes that leaders should be held accountable and even publicly removed when they're out of step with the gospel. He says that to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, verse 20. The third reason is Peter's hypocrisy here is public. This is the primary reason why I think Peter needed to be corrected publicly. Because his offense was public, witnessed by many, therefore correction ought to be seen publicly as well. Uh, The same is true uh, for us today, usually in cases of church discipline, when sin is so scandalous and publicly known by outsiders in the world. Action is needed for the sake of Christ's reputation. Uh, That's why Paul writes to the Corinthian church about, about the man scandalously living with his father's wife to remove him from their midst. So if you find yourself in a position of similar circumstances, then public action might be appropriate. But even still, for us as members of the local church, that public action typically happens in the context of our own membership and discipline. Uh, That's why we have membership clearly, uh, because we believe that those who gather in one place are each representatives of Christ. And our church collectively represents Christ in this community. Uh, So when there are some who are living lives that we could say distort the gospel or are like anti-witnesses of Jesus, a correction is necessary for his glory. Uh, So far, I've used very strong language, as has Paul, about Peter's actions in these verses. Uh, But you might be wondering, why is this such a big deal? Is choosing who you eat with really a gospel matter? Is it really hypocrisy on Peter's part? Well, Paul clarifies that in verse 14 with a question. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Uh, This is a hypothetical question, and what he means is basically this, Peter, you yourself don't live like a Jew, uh, even though you were born a Jew, meaning he no longer adheres to the law, to the Old Testament. Uh, He had been eating uh, what he once believed to be unclean foods. He's not required others to be circumcised like the false brothers yet. Paul's saying, Peter, if you were born like a Jew, born a Jew rather, but no longer live like a Jew, why would you require others to live like a Jew? You don't hold yourself to that standard. And he explains how this is the case in verses 15 and 16. He says this, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith faith. In Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. By adding that requirement to be circumcised, uh, it effectively is living in a way that communicates that we must still continue to perform works of the law. But Paul says, We know. This is Christianity 101 or Gospel 101, that the works of the law do not save us. They do not justify a person. We are only justified or saved by faith in Christ. So why are we acting like we must seek justification by our works in the law? Uh, That's what Paul is asking. Uh, Ephesians 2 says that we are saved by grace and not of works. So that we may not boast. And the good news of Jesus is that he is able to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Perfectly obey the law. Lay down his life as a sacrifice for us. His sacrifice pays the penalty that we deserve from sinning and rebelling against God. But because of that sacrifice, we can be forgiven. And then given Christ's righteousness. It's not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness that comes from him. Paul here is reminding Peter that Gentiles have also believed in Jesus and are also saved by his grace apart from the law. And he's reminding them that the works of the law are of no benefit to salvation. If you have uh, been inside of Protestant churches for very long, you've probably heard a catchphrase Like this, we're saved by grace alone, or saved by saved by grace alone through faith alone. It's not just a catchphrase that we picked up. It's because in the past, the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Trent, declared that man was justified by grace through faith plus ongoing works. But that's a message that runs contrary to the gospel. Paul is clear in these verses that we cannot work for our own justification, that we have nothing to contribute to the matter. It's completely grace alone and the works of Jesus that saves us. For the Christian, works are an evidence of salvation, but not the cause of salvation. That's the reason James later says that faith without works is dead. He's not saying that we must work to be saved. He's saying that uh, there is no evidence one has been saved if there's no fruit in his life as a believer. But the gospel message is a message of grace alone, by faith alone. And if that faith is sincere, it will result in a godly lifestyle. Now, a common explanation to this kind of explanation of grace by faith uh, is to say that faith is some kind of work. That faith is a kind of work that we do that contributes to our salvation. But friends, we must not make the mistake of thinking faith is a work. Why? Because faith itself is a gift from God. Faith itself is a result of the Spirit softening our hearts to the truth of the gospel. Secondly, our faith does not actually save us. It is simply the means by which we receive God's grace. It does not cause God's grace. It receives it. Uh, Imagine a rock climber. Uh, I read a story uh, in the last couple of days about a rock climber that was climbing the half dome in Yosemite uh, who slipped from uh, the ropes, slid down about 80 foot and uh, caught herself on a, on a ledge that only extended out about a foot and was about six feet wide. Uh, and she was stranded there. Underneath her was an over 8,000-foot drop. And when you find yourself in that kind of situation, you basically have one, one or two hopes. Uh, that someone will come looking for you. Uh, they'll, they'll send search and rescue or that you have some way of calling search and rescue to come and bring a helicopter uh, to helicopter you out. Uh, That's, in fact, what happened. Thankfully, this this lady was uh, okay. Uh, But that image of a helicopter hovering over, sending a rescue line down, stuck out to me. As difficult as it is for the helicopter to get close to the cliff, uh, then uh, the amount of strength required to cling to the rescue line as the helicopter pulls someone away to safety. The clinging to the rescue line is like our faith in Christ. The clinging to the rescue line does not save Uh, any more than clinging to the rescue line causes that helicopter to propel itself or to to lead the person to safety. Uh, Similarly, our faith in Christ does not cause His grace to come to us. It does not cause His death on the cross for us. It does not keep us to the end. But if we cling to Him, He will carry us to the end. Uh, Remember that faith does not just mean belief. Faith means Trust. It means to rely on something. We are saved by grace through faith, saved by grace through trust. Trust in what? We might say. Trust in the finished work of Christ. When you stand before God in judgment, will you look at your own works to be justified? Or will you look at Christ? Dear friends, how could we look at our own works? They will only condemn us. They could never be good enough. We must look to Jesus and Jesus alone. Before we move on to the second point, uh, there's a few important ways that I think we can apply these verses to our lives. So if all Christians are susceptible to hypocrisy, we must first guard ourselves from the fear of man. Guard ourselves from the fear of man. Peter feared the circumcision party. It caused him to live inconsistently with the gospel that he preached. And a fear of man uh, can just be defined as uh, uh, caring about what others think over and above what God thinks. Caring about what others think over and above what God thinks. In Peter's case, it was being afraid of perhaps mockery or ridicule of the circumcision party when associating with Gentile Christians. A fear of man causes us to minimize what God thinks about something and to maximize what others think, and then acting according to what we fear others will think. Ed Welch, in his excellent book, When People Are Big and God Is Small, says that identifying fear of man in your life is an excellent way to discover the idols in your life. For Peter, it may have been the idol of uh, acceptance among Jews. It may have been a matter of reputation among men. But the results became actions contrary to the gospel. A second way we can apply this to our lives is be mindful of the example that we set for others. Be mindful of the example we set for others. The reason why hypocrisy is so serious is because it leads others astray. Did you notice the way Paul described those who followed Peter and his hypocrisy? He says, even Barnabas. I'm guessing Barnabas is not the type of guy that you would expect would fall into uh, some kind of hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray. Your example might be more influential than you think to those around you. Sin is serious no matter what, but because it is sin against God. But to lead another astray is even more so. So we should be mindful of the example that we set for others. The example we set for our spouses, for our children, for our co-workers, for our friends and family. Uh, So, brother and sister, do you live a life that is consistent with the gospel that you believe A third application, be mindful of whose example you follow. Be mindful of whose example you follow. One thing we learn from this passage is that leaders are human too. On the one hand, this means we shouldn't hold them to a perfect standard or assume they never sin, of course. Much could be said about uh, uh, not being so discouraged when leaders uh, fail. It, of course, is discouraging, but they are men and, and women. But I think there's something to be said about evaluating the influences in our lives as well. Uh, Do you deliberately follow those who are more godly than you? Are there influences in your life that you perhaps give too much time and attention to? In the digital age, these influences don't have to be uh, relationships. They can be companies. They could be political figures. They could be celebrities, Christian leaders, and so on. I don't bring this up to say that you should find all the negative influences and completely cut them out of your life, but simply that we exercise an awareness of how those influences affect us and actively seek to follow those who follow Christ well. A fourth point of application. Be prepared to stand alone for the gospel. Be prepared to stand alone for the gospel. Sometimes making a stand for the gospel means standing alone, like Paul did in this situation. If you have an opportunity to represent Christ in some way to maybe family members or co-workers, there's a good chance you might be alone in doing it. Dear friends, stand for what you know to be true in the eyes of God. Remember Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. At the end of time, you won't be standing alone. You'll be standing with many other brothers and sisters in the Lord, and you'll be standing with Jesus himself. Point two. To add works-based righteousness, sorry, to add works-based requirements to the gospel is to nullify the grace of God, making Christ's death meaningless to add works-based requirements to the gospel is to nullify the grace of God, making Christ's death meaningless. This is verses 17 through 21. That adding works-based requirements does not contribute positively to the gospel. It actually negates the gospel. It works against the free grace through Christ. And Paul introduces this idea with a question in verse 17. And the language is a little bit Uh, confusing. But what Paul is saying is this. What if after you become a Christian, you are found to still be a sinner? Is Jesus then a minister or a servant of sin? And he says, certainly not. Uh, One of the things that Paul is doing by asking this question is addressing the false assumption that becoming a Christian means you will no longer sin. You will suddenly be righteous. But that way of thinking makes that crucial error. It thinks about Jesus the same way we think about the law. It's to still seek your own righteousness in obedience to Christ. Under the law, Jews sought to uh, make themselves righteous by keeping it. But Paul's answer is that to return to a works-based righteousness at all is to return to the law whether or not it's in the name of Jesus or something else in the name of Moses. It's to return to slavery under the law, as he said earlier. And he does this by using a building analogy in verse 18. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself a transgressor. What is he talking about building here? (laughs) He's talking about rebuilding a works-based righteousness system. Uh, And we know that from what he says in the very next verse. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. So just stop there for a moment. Paul says, I have died to the law. That's what happened when Paul became a Christian. He died to the law. The life he built on the law as a Pharisee, he tore down. He counted it as nothing. Therefore, to turn to a gospel of grace plus works, would be to rebuild what has already been torn down. Uh, Just picture in your heads with me that veil in the temple separating the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. That veil that was torn from top to bottom when Christ breathed his last. Uh, Symbolically representing the barrier between God and man. The removal of it. The function of the temple no longer needed along with the sacrificial system, which, by the way, is a part of the same law that requires circumcision. No more mediation of a high priest to the holy of holies, because Christ himself is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. To return to the law, to return to extra workspace requirements like this, is like stitching back together that four-inch thick curtain and hanging it back up. Creating a barrier between God and man once again the barrier that Christ removed. Paul uses this language of death and life here, which is appropriate for the Christian, because Jesus used that language too. But before Christ, we're all dead in need of resurrection. Christ said we must be reborn. He said we must pick up our cross and carry and follow Him. Paul also uses this language in Romans 5. He says... Through one man, Adam, all sinned, and so death reigned. But then through one act of righteousness, Christ's, then all can live again. Romans 5.21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul says in Ephesians 4, to put off the old man, to put on the new self. The old man has died to himself. The new man lives in Christ. Jesus used this language as well. It's not that becoming a disciple of Jesus means that we simply stop sinning. Uh, If that's what you think, then we've already misunderstood how this works. We're all sinners in need of grace, and we continue to be Uh, after trusting in Christ. Uh, That's why we need daily repentance, daily trust in Christ. But when we become Christians, we live as Christ would have us live. We live in accordance with His command because we love Him. We long to serve Him because our hearts have been changed to love His commands. Uh, Like I said earlier, our obedience to Christ is the fruit of our salvation, but not the cause of it. Paul said to the Philippians, to live is Christ. That's why he says, I have been crucified with Christ in verse 19. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us because we've put aside our selfish desires. We've turned away from sin and idolatry. We have pledged service to Christ Jesus. Verse 21 is the summary of this whole section. Paul doesn't nullify the grace of God because he lives by faith in the Son of God. Uh, Faith in Christ's works, not in his own. But to trust in your own works, to build what we have tore down, is to make nothing of Christ's sacrifice. It's to hang up that curtain and return to temple worship and law observance. It's to depend on ourselves rather than on him. Uh, We have a really hard time, though, letting go of these ideas that that our good deeds gain us some kind of favor with God and that our bad deeds gain us some kind of disfavor with God. We forget that it was while we were sinners Christ died for us. Uh, most uh, conversations I've had with people who, who are not confessing Christians uh, usually have one of two holdups. They either mistakenly think, yeah, I think I'm pretty much good enough that God will let me into heaven. Or they mistakenly think, I am so bad that God would never want someone like me. Uh, friends, both are mistaken. Both are wrong. Uh, God set his love for us on us while we were still sinners. Uh, we do not contribute to our being saved. God's grace was shown to us in Christ's coming and dying on the cross. We trust in his work alone, not our own. Christ did not die for us to remain slaves of the law. He died so that we could be saved, not by our own works, not by our own righteousness, but by his. To preach grace by faith plus works is to disregard Christ, therefore. It makes his death meaningless. It makes us act as if he never died. That's what Peter's actions communicated to those around him that we are still bound to the law and not freed from it. It was a form of hypocrisy because his actions didn't match what he preached, the free gift of salvation to all who believe in Jesus, received by faith. This should be a sobering reminder for us not to assume we are above the folly of hypocrisy. We'll never perfectly practice what we preach, of course. Our lives are all inconsistent in small ways. Uh, We avoid talking about the gospel with those we love. We withhold forgiveness from others while presuming on the grace of God in our our own lives. We are harsh and quick-tempered with our kids when the Lord has been gracious and patient to us. And yet, uh, we can be thankful and encouraged to know that our salvation does not depend on our works or our ability to keep the law Because through the law comes only knowledge of sin. Brothers and sisters, remember to guard the gospel. Trust in Christ alone so as to not nullify the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at the grace shown to us through your Son and our Lord Jesus. It is a mystery why you set your love on us, but we give you thanks. Father, we pray that we would guard our lives walking wisely in the world. Protect us uh, from living inconsistent lives, uh, from giving Christ a bad name uh, to those around us. Instead, help us to walk with humility, trust in Christ, And let us be assured that our salvation is secure in you. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.